Our text for today is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. Or I'm sorry, yeah, 7 through 15. Yes. These are the words of the living God. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this awesome passage. We thank you for this place uh, to which you have brought us in our study. I pray that you would help your people to be attentive to the word as it is preached today, to follow the text and its implications for our lives. Help us to do that. Help me to get out of the way. Have your most holy way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In the world that we live in today, we are convinced that we need uh, a bunch of stuff, and indeed we do. Uh, What are some of these things that we would say are necessities in the world? By the way, I've renamed the sermon Necessities. (laughs) It's different than it is in the bulletin. So what are some of these things that we would say are necessities? Well, we would say that you need to have an education, right? You need to be able to uh, understand the world that we are living in in order to function properly. And in order to do this, you have to have uh, some sort of an education. Uh, We would also say that freedom is very important. Uh, If we don't have freedom, we are not living to our fullest potential. We would say it is freedom. Uh, Freedom is essential to have as human beings. Uh, it is it is important to have uh, a vocation uh, or a job that you can provide for yourself and your family with uh, that you work in in the world, no matter what that may be. You have to have uh, some sort of no, a vocation eventually. That that is a necessity to be able to function and uh, do uh, the things that you need to do in this life. Also, there are things that are just basic necessities like food, clothing shelter, water. We have to have these things in order to live. And as we will see today in our passage, as Christians, there are some things that we just cannot live without. There are some things as Christians that we need to have that are necessity to being Christian. Jesus is coming again, and he is coming to judge the world. 
And since he is coming again, there are two things that we must do. There's two things that we are going to focus on today in our passage specifically, and that is, first of all, since Jesus is coming again, we must believe and not be idle now. Since Jesus is coming again, we must believe and not be idle now. We see that in verses 7 through 10. The second point is, since Jesus is coming again, we must live holy and righteous lives now, here and now. We see that in verses 11 through 15. So since Jesus is coming again, there are some implications for our lives today. We're looking at two of those things specifically in our sermon today. And again, we see that first point, since Jesus is coming again, we must not be idle now in verses 7 through 10. So look back there uh, with me, if you would, and we'll read it again, and uh, we'll get into it. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so a couple of questions. What is this thousand years? What is this, bind, uh, this, this binding of Satan business? And what is this last battle that we see uh, being spoken of here in this text? Let's start with that first question. What are these thousand years? If you look back up in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 20, you will see that Jesus binds the devil for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Now, when does this take place? When does this thousand-year binding happen? Well, it, it begins during the earthly ministry of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is bound during the ministry of Christ so that he and the apostles can go out and preach the gospel to the Jews, and they can hear it and accept it and uh, be saved. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, unless you first bind the strong man, you cannot enter into his house and plunder his goods. And that is indeed what Jesus has done to the devil during his earthly ministry. He binds him, and he begins to plunder uh, his goods. Uh, In uh, small portions throughout the Old Testament, in small groups of people among Israel and without, people are not deceived, and they come uh, into the kingdom. But for most part, the devil is deceiving the nations throughout uh, the Old Covenant era. When Jesus comes on the scene... He binds the devil and begins taking people from his kingdom into his own, uh, as it were. He is plundering the devil's kingdom, as it were. And as I said, he first does this in large part among the Jews, but then later on throughout all of the nations in uh, the first century. You will remember that Jesus has a decisive victory over the devil uh, in his earthly ministry. Uh, Back in our passage that we studied on the temptation of Jesus. We saw that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he does not give in to those temptations, and he emerges from the wilderness victorious over the devil. And he goes out after that, and he begins to exercise authority over the devil, trampling him underfoot. Moreover, Uh, we see that he gives this same authority to the apostles to go out and exercise authority over the devil uh, in his ministry. And after they get back from experiencing all of these victories, they come to Jesus and they are telling him about them. And he says, 
in response that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is, he saw the kingdom of the devil being toppled as they were going out and doing ministry. And he tells the apostles after that that they have authority to trample scorpions and serpents. Uh, That is, to exercise authority and overcome the devil and his minions and set men and women free from their enslavement, which is indeed what they do. Even just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Paul tells the Romans, the God of peace is about to crush Satan under your feet soon or shortly. Okay, so the, the, the binding of Satan and the thousand years is something that sort of happens progressively in between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know Jesus decisively defeated the devil through his, through his death and resurrection and ascension. And as a result of the ascension, he sent the Spirit into the world to empower the church to go and conquer the devil's kingdoms, to preach the gospel and to exercise authority in the world, and indeed they do that. Another result of Jesus' ascension is he begins to judge the world, and we see him do that decisively in 70 AD when he sends the Romans in to destroy Jerusalem for uh, Israel's rejection of him as their Messiah. And from that time on, the devil is bound so that he can no longer inspire the nations to destroy the church of God from the world. And indeed, he cannot today. So the binding of Satan and the thousand years are to be understood symbolically of the time in between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, where the people of God are given a decisive victory over the devil uh, through the ministry that Jesus gives to them uh, in his church. It's through the ministry of Jesus and the church that this definitive victory uh, is taking place. Uh, It's not as if Satan is no longer active in the world. He is indeed active. He He just doesn't have any power to deceive the nations any longer. He's been placed under the authority of Christ. And as a result, vast multitudes of people are coming into the church during the church age, the age in which we are living, and the church continues to flourish in the world. So that is the binding of Satan and the thousand years. So what is this release of Satan in reference to? It says after the thousand years that Satan is going to be released. Uh, It is in reference to a final release which precipitates a final battle. It says that he comes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And uh, indeed he does, and he takes them and he leads them uh, in this effort to try and destroy uh, the church of God from the world once and for all. And John refers to them as Gog and Magog in uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, which again is to be understood symbolically. Gog is a man from a wicked nation that was inspired by the devil in the Old Testament to try to kill the Jews during the days of Esther. And so what we see here again is another battle that takes place at the end of human history where the devil has inspired wicked men to try and destroy the church of Jesus Christ from the world once and for all. Now, this is something that God permits. It says that the devil is released, right? Who releases him? Well, God releases him. Jesus has authority over him, and so he is indeed able to do that. So at the end of human history, after the entire world has been evangelized, and you have men from every nation bowing 
the knee uh, to Jesus Christ as Lord, I think in the majority, uh, at that part, another deception takes place. Uh, And the devil will come out and he will lead all those who are not truly believers in an effort to try and destroy uh, the work of Jesus in the world once again, but his effort will be short-circuited. Jesus will return from heaven in flaming fire and he will destroy all of his enemies that are gathered together against him and his people. Now, as I said, the devil is not completely incapacitated. He is not inactive in the world, but he has been disarmed. He has been disarmed. And what we need to know as Christians is that we are able to have victory over the devil in the world, but he can hinder us. Now, the devil cannot stop faithful gospel-centered ministry, right? He can, he can no longer deceive the nations. So he can't stop the gospel, he can't stop faithful gospel-centered ministry, and he can't stop faithful gospel-centered uh, Christians. But he can hinder us in the work that we are doing if we give himself to him. And friends, this is what we need to pay attention to. It is possible for the devil to gain a foothold in your life or in the church. It's possible for him to do that, and indeed he does uh, do that. Um, Right now, we are in a cosmic war that is taking place. Jesus has invaded this world with his kingdom, and he is on course to overthrow uh, the kingdoms of this world, but we ought not to think for a moment that the devil is going to go down without a fight, (laughs) because he, he is not going to. Christ is king, and he is using his church, as I've said, to advance his kingdom in the world. And we can either give ground to the devil, or we can take it depending on our faithfulness now. You hear that? We can either give ground to the devil, or we can take it depending on our faithfulness now. And I will tell you what, friends, there is nothing more that the devil likes than an idle Christian. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Uh, A faithful, biblical, gospel-centered Christian is a real threat to the devil. God has given man authority in uh, the world, and we are to go out and to take dominion over it. And we are a real threat to the devil. But if we just sit back and we become idle Christians, the devil runs amok in our lives and in the world. And we are just idle when we are sitting by the wayside, the devil is running amok. And if we are the ones who are supposed to be exercising authority in the world and we are not, somebody else will. And indeed, he does. If you just look out into the world today, you will know that to be the truth. Uh, The church is supposed to have a restraining effect on society. Uh, And when we do not, evil runs rampant in the world. Uh, a lot of the compromise and the wickedness that we see in the world today is a result of the fact that in large part the church has been on the sidelines over the last 100 years. When when you can put a half-naked woman on television during the Super Bowl halftime show in front of little kids and parents don't bat an eye, you know that the devil is doing his work. Right? 50 or 60 years ago, those women would have been arrested. But today, they are celebrated. Right? So if you uh, look at these things, you will see 
that the devil is at work. He's having his way. You see, what the devil wants us to do is to get distracted with other things, to get us off of our feet and to get us onto the sidelines. Why? Well, because then he can have a real party. (laughs) And indeed, he uh, does. And he even does it in our own lives and in our families. And by the way, the devil is up to his same old tricks. He is doing the same thing that he has always done since the Garden of Eden. He is questioning the Word of God. He is saying, has God said? And what the devil wants us to do is begin to question the Word of God and to believe other things instead. And when he does that, he gets a stranglehold in our lives. God has said some things about us in Jesus Christ, friends, and we have to believe them. We have to believe what God has said, we have to believe the gospel, and we have to believe what God has said about us. The devil says, you're a failure. He says, you're a a reject. He says that you will never amount to anything. Uh, He says, you're worthless. And if you believe that, it'll have an effect on the progress that you make in the world today. Uh, when you believe these kinds of lies, they incapacitate you and make you ineffectual uh, for uh, the kingdom of God in the world. You become ineffectual. And what we need to do is believe what God says about us in Jesus Christ, what he says in his word. We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are beloved. We are more than conquerors. And when we do that, when we believe the truth, when we believe what God has said in his word, the devil cannot stop us. The devil is bound. You see? But we must be faithful, gospel-centered Christians. So since Jesus is coming again, we must believe and not be idle now. We see that second point, since Jesus is coming again, we must live holy and righteous lives in verses 11 through 15. Let's read that again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what John, when John begins his next section, he says then. He says then. So this is the next thing that John sees. Jesus returns to uh, judge his enemies, and then he judges the world. John sees a great white throne. Uh, This is the place where God sits and judges all of the nations. So there are a couple of events that are all kind of happening in conjunction here with one another. Uh, The devil is gathering together the nations against the church of God. Jesus comes and he returns and he destroys his enemies. The dead are resurrected and then they all stand before the throne in order to be judged. Before these evil men who are being led by the devil to destroy the church of God, Jesus returns and he destroys them. And what John sees next is the throne of judgment and then before it, all the dead. All the dead. That is, every person who has ever lived is now standing before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged at the end of 
the world, from the small to the great. That is, everyone who has ever lived is now resurrected and standing before the judgment seat. And that is the thing that I want you to pay attention to. Nobody escapes this judgment. Every person who has ever lived from the beginning of time to the second coming of Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged by God. Now, something else that is very important that you need to pay attention to in this text is that there are two different types of books that are mentioned. There is the book of works, and there is the book of life. And the thing that you have to focus on is the fact that everybody is judged according to the book of works, but only those who are found in the book of life are saved from being judged and experiencing eternal condemnation. They are saved from the eternal condemnation. So what are we to make of this? Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, he says that he is coming again to judge everybody according to their works. He does this again and again and again throughout his ministry. Nobody is exempt from this. And you say, well, didn't we just learn a couple weeks ago that we are all justified by faith when we believe on Jesus savingly and that all of us who are justified by faith will stand before God on the last day and be justified? Yes, yes, we did. And that is true, but we will also be judged. We will also be judged. Paul said in his letter this morning that we read in first, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 5 that we must all, that is every Christian, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things that they have done in the body, whether they are good or bad. He says in his letter to the Romans that we must all appear before the judgment seat of God to give an account. And here again, we see everyone, all of the dead, are standing before God to be judged. Now, this is something that I want you to hear. Everyone who is saved, everyone who has ever been saved, everyone who is saved or ever will be saved, is saved by grace and grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Okay? We quote the, the, the passage from Ephesians chapter 2, often when we are talking about salvation. You are saved by grace, through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But we often forget the verse that comes after. The very next verse says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what it says, the next verse. His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what are we to make of this? Well, God not only saves us, but he makes us into a new person with holy desires, a desire to obey him, and indeed we must. God created us in Jesus Christ according to Uh, to Paul for this very purpose. In In other words, anyone who is truly saved will do good works. And if you do not have good works, you are not saved. It's as simple as that. There is no question about that. It is as Jesus says in his parable of the vine dresser. He is the vine, we are the branches, And anybody that's in him that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. Uh, There is no question about these things. And that is exactly what we see here, friends, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. 
I want you to listen carefully to this next section. Our good works will be a validation of our salvation at the judgment seat of Christ. You hear what I said? They are a validation of our salvation. They are not the means of our salvation. They are a validation of our salvation. God will use them uh, as a means. Uh, God will evaluate our good works on that day, and he will use the good works of the believer as a means to validate the salvation that they already have. God does not justify us based on our good works. He justifies us based on the good work of Christ. But he will evaluate our good works at the judgment seat to prove that we have been justified by Christ. Does that make sense? It's, it's just as it would be in any court hearing. You could imagine somebody coming forward at this point where Jesus is judging the world and saying to Jesus, Jesus, where is your evidence that these people are justified? In any court hearing, you have evidence presented, right? And Jesus will say, well, just look at their lives. Look at how they loved me. Look at how they loved other people. Look at how they held on to me even during those trying times. Look at how they loved the poor. This will be a way in which God justifies uh, us before the entire world, proves that we are justified before the entire world. It is just as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the documents that we hold to in this church, that we are saved by faith alone. But listen, that faith is never alone. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith. You are saved by faith alone, but your faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by all other saving graces. And it is not a dead faith. It is a faith that works through love. That is, it is not, it's a living, breathing, active, and obedient faith. It's a faith that produces something. In this section, we're talking about good works, namely good works. And those good works, by the way, are going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, proving that you are justified. And if you do not have them, you are not justified and you will not be justified. Your name is not in the book of life and therefore you are cast into the lake of fire with uh, the devil and his angels. This is the second death, according to John. Death and hell go into the lake of fire And the devil and his angels go into the lake of fire. And anybody whose name is not found written in the book of life goes into the lake of fire, which is the second death. There are two births, just as there are two deaths, right? You must experience there's a natural birth, right? And there's a spiritual birth. Talk about being born again. In the same way, there is a natural death and there is a spiritual death. And if you have only been born naturally into this world and not spiritually At the judgment seat of Christ, you will experience the second death. You will not only die once, you will die twice. The second death is eternal judgment. It means that you die forever. Again, everybody who has been raised to life at this point is going to receive a resurrected uh, body. Well, the believer receives a glorified resurrected body in which he can worship and and, uh, glorify God forever. But the unbeliever is given a resurrected body at this point as well. But in that case, he's given a resurrected body for torment and destruction, not for glory and enjoyment. 
Everybody's raised. Everybody gets uh, a resurrected body. Everybody's judged. And everybody has an eternal destiny. Those who have not been born again, those who have not embraced Christ as Lord and believed on Him as Savior to the saving of their souls, um, will experience the second death, according to John. Everybody who is not found written in the book of life, we could say. That is how it's stated here. You notice that, right? Everybody is judged according to the books of works, but those whose names are not found in the book of life cast into the lake of fire. Those are Christ's people. Those are the people who belong to him, who are given faith by the Holy Spirit, believe to the saving of their souls, follow him and serve him all their, their days. Those people are in the book of life. Therefore, they are standing there at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, receiving uh, uh, an entrance into the kingdom from their Lord. He says in, in one of the passages in, uh, in the Gospels, enter into the joy of your Lord, or enter into the joy of your Master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Others go off into eternal condemnation. All right, friends, now that we've looked at this doctrine of final judgment, how does it affect us here and now? How does the fact that we're all going to stand before the, one, uh, the judgment seat of Christ and one day be judged affect us now? How does it inspire us? How does it change the way that we think and live now? Well, in summary, it should inspire us to live holy lives. It should inspire us to live upright lives. As a matter of fact, that is what Paul and Peter are saying in their letters. In light of the coming judgment, in light of the fact that that thing is coming down the road, live a holy life now. Live a holy life now. Listen, friends, let me say something. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. This is a damnable doctrine that has been preached in the church over the last, I don't even know how long, 50, 100 years maybe. But this idea that you can be a Christian and that you can live any old way. Yeah, I'm a Christian. That's okay. I've got my salvation and now I can go and live however I want. Friends, a person who thinks that way will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and experience eternal condemnation on that day. There's no such thing as um, a carnal Christian. Paul says that it is the will of God for our lives. Uh, Excuse me. Paul says the will of God for our lives is our sanctification. That is that we are to be holy. We're to be made holy. We are to honor God with our bodies now. We are to control ourselves now. We are to live moral lives now. We are to cultivate love and affection for one another. We're to grow in knowledge. We're to grow in self-control now. We're to live godly lives now. Why? Because again, it is as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, If you don't have holiness, you won't be saved. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That is what he tells us. Uh, Again, we are new creatures in Christ, and so we are to live new lives. And that means that we repent of our sins whenever we commit them. And we do not continue to give ourselves to them. We may struggle with them, we may wrestle with them, but we seek to reform our behaviors, not continuing to sin in those same ways again and again. That is what it means to be, more, to be made holy, to be sanctified, right? And when we do that, when we seek to honor and please God with our lives, God makes us more like Him. And by the way, every person that God saves, that is His plan for your life. It's to make you look more like Jesus Christ because He wants to glorify Jesus in the world. And guess what? we got to remember this. Jesus is holy. 
Jesus is holy. And so he wants to make us look more like Jesus. Well, we, we're going to be made to look more holy. At the end, it comes down to this. Where do you go? What do you do with your hands? Uh, who do you hang out with? People, places, and things, are they holy? Are your people, places, and things holy? What do you, where do you go with your feet? What do you do with your hands? What do you look at with your eyes? What do you listen to with your ears? Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, are they holy? <clears throat> Paul tells us in his letter to uh, the uh, Corinthians that we are to examine ourselves. In the end of his letter to the Corinthians, you are to examine yourself and to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And that is not so that we can go around looking at other people, inspecting their lives to see if they're Christians, to see if they have good works. It's so that we can inspect our own. Because again, there's going to be a final evaluation. There's going to be a final reckoning of all things. And if we are not changed people, if we have not produced good works, if we have not produced good fruit in our lives, we will find out that we were never truly Christians in the first place. So we have seen that Jesus is indeed coming again to judge the world, and when He comes, He will set all things right. He will defeat all of His enemies and ours at His second coming, and He will save us. And during the time in between the first and second coming of Christ, we are not to be idle Christians. We are to live for Him, to serve Him. We're to use the authority that He has given us to take dominion over the world because, again, Satan has been bound. And he can't stop the gospel. He can't stop us. Uh, We have also seen that He is going to judge every one of us. He's coming, and He's going to judge every one of us. Every person alike. The resurrection will be general. Everyone is included. And so we ought to live holy and righteous lives now in light of his coming. So uh, let us live knowing that Christ is at work in the world to conquer through us so we cannot be idle. And that he has saved us, but he has not just saved us just to save us, but for a holy purpose. And therefore, we ought to live holy lives. For he is indeed coming again to judge the living 